0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, if you ever miss an episode, go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, who are you speaking with this week?
0: Well, we've got a theologian who knows economics, and we've got an economist who's got conversational literacy in theology, so really integrating what the world tries to pull apart, ethics and economic science. We'll be talking to Dr. Kirk Doran. He's a professor of economics at the University of Notre Dame, and a Notre Dame theology doctoral student, Brian Boyd. We're going to be talking about their article in the Journal of American Affairs about the connection between productivity and increasing wages.
1: Increasing wages, that's a great topic. I know a lot of families out there, they're just, they're struggling. They're living paycheck to paycheck and things just aren't keeping up with the cost of living. So could definitely use some good policies out there. I'll be interested to hear what they have to say. And I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item.
0: I'm now joined by Dr. Kirk Doran and doctoral candidate Brian Boyd. Uh, Dr. Doran and Mr. Boyd are at the University of Notre Dame. They wrote a recent article in Church Life Journal, Governance for Good Jobs, the Need for Pro-Productivity Reforms, which was published by, as I said, American Affairs, a very fine new journal of public policy. So really looking forward to this discussion, but a few words about our guest. Dr. Doran is the Henkels Family Collegiate Chair and Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Notre Dame. He received his BA in physics from Harvard University, his master's in applied mathematics from Harvard, and his PhD in economics from Princeton in 2008, where his dissertation won Princeton's Labor Economics Dissertation Award. His research focuses on issues in labor economics, innovation economics, and international migration, with a particular focus on human capital complementaries. Brian Boyd is a doctoral candidate in moral theology at the University of Notre Dame, and they only let a few of those in at Notre Dame every year, so obviously he's very bright. His interest in the way that personal virtue and communal flourishing are impacted by social structures has led him to focus on economic justice with a particular attention to wages. Mr. Boyd also studies the ethics of science and technology and serves as a consultant for the journal The New Atlantis. Dr. Doran and Mr. Boyd, it is great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder program.
2: Thank you, Jason. It's an honor to be here. Thanks. Likewise.
0: We're talking about your very fine article about wages and productivity. It will get us into questions of economic justice and distributive justice as well. And and as productivity increases, yet wages have remained stagnant. We're going to dive in to all those interesting things. But first, how did you get interested in these questions? And how did the two of you come to collaborate in very different fields uh, to write this article? I got interested in
2: these questions back in graduate school, I had an opportunity to work with some really fine labor economists, such as early Ashenfelter and Henry Farber, who've been working on these questions for years, along with uh, Christina Paxson, uh, now president of Brown, I believe, and C.C. Rouse uh, in, in the White House. So some really great economists were there working on labor market issues. And what I saw is not only is the labor market important to everybody's well-being, but it's also an area that generates a wealth of data. So if you're really interested in understanding the trends that are affecting people's well-being and digging into it, digging into labor economics is the way to go. Then I had the opportunity to meet Brian uh, when I came to Notre Dame. And Brian, maybe you can take it from there because I love collaborating with Brian and this has been fantastic. Uh,
3: Yeah, so for me, it was, I came back to grad school because I had been a school teacher, uh, parochial, just middle school teaching uh, English and the Bible. To these students and just really interested about virtue development, character development in general. Then as I went back to uh, classes in theology, more and more I came to understand the formative effects of our economy. And it's so important, as Kirk's saying, not simply for providing the material uh, goods necessary for flourishing, but also just the character formation that we get by being participants in the global economy. It's been really fun getting to know, uh, and actually I have my theoretical work uh, really be tested by Kirk's empirical work. It's been a great collaboration. I'm grateful he's on my dissertation committee. So it's up to him as to whether I'll be Dr.
2: Boyd a few months from now. <laughs> Depends how this podcast goes, Brian.
0: Outstanding. And Brian has already mentioned a little bit why theologians or budding theologians should care about economics, but why should economists care about theology? Isn't it an empirical science with its own rules and laws? But if you, if you look at the
2: empirical data really carefully, what you can see is that the empirical regularities are really consistent with a broad swath of individual human behavior. And a lot of that washes out in the aggregate. People have free will, and they're bound by various constraints, and those constraints tend to push them in one direction or another and often intersect in mathematically interesting ways and that's actually what produces a lot of the aggregate patterns we see it around us in the economy so what all of that means is that if you look at individual behavior there's great freedom within the context of economic constraints to do good or do evil to do something that makes your life flourish more or flourish less and the existence of these empirical regularities in economics in no way eliminates that freedom with all the richness of the moral lives that can result. And in fact, it's one step beyond that. Actually, the the, the best and most powerful empirical regularities in economics have their best properties, do the most for humankind among virtuous people. And there's a lot of different ways to see that. So understanding how individual people's virtues and the development of those virtues in the marketplace can actually have a positive impact in what the market does for us is another important uh, realm for research. So I don't think it I don't think the empirical laws around us vitiate the importance of individual freedom at all. In fact, they demonstrate how individual freedom results in an order that affects the common good.
0: Dr. Doran, before Alfred Marshall, one might say economics was a branch of moral science or ethics and yet it has become an empirical science. Has that been an added benefit in terms of our analysis of human realities and society and economic life? Or has something been lost when we've lost a sense of economics being connected to moral science?
2: I think that something's been gained and something's been lost. I think one thing that's been gained by making economics more empirical is we're able to see which of the theoretical predictions of economics actually make sense. And, you know, economists make a lot of predictions. And in the textbooks, they all look equally strong. But having been an empirical economist for upwards of 15 years now, I can tell you that the empirical evidence is more greatly in favor of a subset of our theoretical predictions than for other ones. So that's been a great benefit. Like all sciences, we want to know which of our predictions make sense and which don't. But it's also been a loss. We spend so much time looking at data and trying to predict and understand the patterns in the data before they happen that we don't think as clearly anymore about the intersection between the moral life, and the development of virtues, and what happens in economies. And I think that's where one of the places where an intersection between theology and economics can be very important.
0: Let's turn to your article, which I think it gets to key questions of distributive justice. What do we mean when we say economic productivity? How is that measured? What are you trying to address in the article?
2: So most broadly, what what we're talking about when we talk about productivity is we talk about the ability to produce goods or services Using a particular set of inputs to make it really, really broad uh, and specific to the labor market, it's the ability of an individual person to produce a certain amount of goods or services within, say, an hour or a day. So if you look at how productive an individual laborer was 200 years ago in the United States or 100 years ago, and you compare that with how productive they are today, we're a lot more productive today people and groups of people who become more productive over time end up being able to consume more and do more over time as well.
0: Brian, I, w- I want to turn the question to you in the sense that productivity is a metric. It's a way of measuring things, but you and our conversation already have alluded to other metrics, goods, human flourishing. In what way is productivity not just an economic measure, but also one might say a, a measure of human flourishing? And what other metrics are relevant when we talk about human productivity?
3: Yeah, for one thing, I definitely agree that productivity is of essential importance. As long as we keep in mind that it's important as a means to higher order ends. So all the goods that we're talking about, I mean, the goods of being able to go to a grocery store and get your stuff quickly, the goods of, I mean, services from a plumber to a massage therapist. These are all worthwhile in and of themselves, but then also insofar as they contribute to higher order flourishing. And so this is where I think it's important that we try to have metrics, like there's a gross national happiness index that some people put forward. There's some social scientists trying to quantify well-being flourishing. And it's important that we look at what are human capacities across, across different cultures and what does it mean for people to develop their full range of their personality But at the end of the day, it's important that we keep it as a qualitative rather than a quantitative measure, and that we are pursuing a world where genuine leisure, the ability to spend time with one's family is the, the end goal, rather than simply more productivity for the sake of more stuff, for the sake of even working harder, even better.
0: Now, speaking from a quantitative standpoint, Dr. Doran, productivity has outpaced wages over the past 50 years. Why has that been the case? Why have wages not kept pace? with productivity and, and, you know, should we be troubled by that or not? I think there are many economists out there who would say, well, that's just, you know, this is how the market's working. So, I mean, I, I think
2: in part, it depends what you mean by productivity and what you mean by wages. I think if you look carefully at the distribution of wages across different sectors and you look carefully at productivity across different sectors over time, and you're pretty careful with your definitions, you can see that what's happened is that there's a subset of the workforce whose wages have lagged, certainly, and that's a subset of the workforce whose wages used to be growing along with productivity and has not been growing anymore. And so I really wouldn't describe the primary economic phenomenon that we've seen in the labor market as a discrepancy between productivity in general and wages in general. I would describe it as a slowdown in the increase of labor demand for workers with relatively low skills.
0: Your article is in some respects, and this is a question for Brian, but Dr. Doran, please chime, chime in. It's a response to those who argue for a universal basic income. And now I think proponents of that might find that proposal attractive precisely because it provides a basic measure of subsistence. It keeps people out of destitution in a dynamic economy where it's hard to keep up with new trainings and technologies. And job transformations and make sure people have that very basic level of subsistence, but it might be a problem both from an economic standpoint, but also a standpoint of undermining the moral agency and dignity of human persons, perhaps in line with what Pope John Paul says in Laborum Exertions. What is universal basic income and why did is there a response to that both from a moral, but also an economic standpoint?
3: Yes. Yeah, so the idea of universal basic income is to just cut a check to every American Like we did a couple of times in the pandemic, but just systematically 600 bucks, a thousand bucks every month for every citizen. Sometimes it's proposed as a freedom dividend because you happen to be born in the great rich country of America. You just, you get this extra money. I appreciate the intuition behind it. Definitely like there's a widespread recognition that many millions of Americans are struggling day to day. And it seems like just giving them money would be a way to help that. I mean, it, it is straightforward. But when you go from charitable donations to just a fundamental governmental policy, there's an important distinction there, especially when it's something that people are in no way contributing to the government providing. And so I think it's important to distinguish between welfare programs that support families, that offer paid leave to parents, that provide for job training or health care that provide the means necessary for people to participate in the economic and social life versus the ones that simply attempt to replace that participation or avoid it altogether. And so there, there's difficult trade-offs, especially when we're talking about like single parents, there, there shouldn't necessarily be a high work requirement for a single mother because she should be able to spend time with her kids and not just have them go off to daycare. I strongly support the family supports that have been raised in a couple of places. But simply giving a check to everyone, no questions asked, undermines the need for people's people's well-being being tied up in what they accomplish in the world as well as their leisure activities.
0: Dr. Dorn, if I understand your argument correctly, as a response to universal basic income, you say actually no, to increase economic self-sufficiency and increase wages, we need pro-productivity reforms. Yes. How do how do pro-productivity reforms, and we'll talk about what some of those might be in a moment. How do they translate in self-sufficiency and higher wages?
2: The most impressive thing in the data is actually if you you know measure things carefully how how much productivity is actually associated with wages. We have a lot of evidence at the individual level that your productivity and your wages are closely tied. If you look at people who kind of randomly um, pass away uh, and they're working for an establishment, that establishment is producing a certain amount of revenue because of that person and is paying that person a certain amount. It turns out a very large percentage of the revenue that those people were producing is going to those people. And so when a person passes away at at an establishment, the revenue will go down by very close to the same amount that the wage bill will go down, which just shows that people are getting paid really close to their productivity, the dollar amount of their product for their companies. And why does that matter? Well, if if there is a close tie between what people are paid and how much they're producing for for the people that are that are hiring them then when we see that people aren't getting paid enough to flourish we have to ask ourselves why is that is it that there's a big gap for this particular person between what they're producing out there in the market and what they're getting paid or as the data is much more likely to show is it really that they're just not producing very much per hour and then we can say why aren't they and we can start thinking creatively about whether it might be possible to create policies that increase productivity for the portion of the American workforce whose productivity has stalled over the last several decades. If everything I've been saying is correct and everything Brian and I were talking about in our article is correct, it should be possible to create some policies that start exploring productivity increases for the people whose productivity is lagged. And those policies should have a big impact on what they get paid.
0: Has that largely been low-skilled workers or what sectors of workers have had their productivity uh, and then by extension, their wages stagnate?
2: Well, it is uh, largely low-skilled workers certainly have had their productivity and, and wages stagnate, although it's you know, we have to be careful when we mean low-skilled. Really, what it is, is there's a, a relatively small subset of very highly skilled workers whose productivity has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a pretty broad portion of the labor force whose productivity growth has stalled that makes a big impact on their ability to get paid high wages.
0: Before we jump into some of those pro-productivity reforms, some might argue that market power, regulatory capture, crony capitalism, those are really the main obstacles to widespread and shared economic prosperity. In other words, we should just let the free markets do their thing and get rid of all these things that impede the market. Why is this insufficient to advance prosperity? And, And either of you can respond to that.
3: I'll jump into that, Kirk, if that's all right. It's because the market has different possible equilibria. I'll show how much I've learned from my economist advisor. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, Zainab Tan, uh, author of The Good Job Strategy, is a phenomenal person to turn to on this. Um, that one path to profitability is Walmarts, where you deliberately pay your workers just enough that they won't come off the welfare rolls and keep their hours low enough that they won't be classified as full-time workers so You won't have to give them health care. They've done some reforms, but it's still not a good place to work. By contrast, would be places like Trader Joe's or Quick Trip, if you're in the South, where these are just gasoline service station. The manager can make $80,000 a year because the, the job has been very thoughtfully designed so that the, the customers come in, they're met with the cheerful, upbeat employees. There's a good flow to their routines. And so if thoughtful design has gone into the way that the jobs are structured, it's possible for even a gas station attendant to be more productive, again, at Quick Trip than at 7-Eleven.
0: And we love us our Quick Trip here in Minnesota. A good Catholic family owns it based in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So uh, good, glad to get a shout out to Quick Trip. You note in the article that Teddy Roosevelt's concern for distributive justice and concern for just relations between worker and enterprise what role should distributive justice play in determining whether or not there's a just wage or what wages should be set at? Where's that intersection between distributive justice and the law of supply and demand?
3: Well, there's two aspects to distributive justice that are relevant. Um, One is for the firm. And so it's just wherever you have profits, then the board of directors and the C-suite has to decide how you're going to distribute those profits. And so if you fail to implement a gain-sharing project or some form of bonuses across the board to reward that the profit, then it's simply a failure to recognize that it's not only the head of the company who produced those profits. And so for supply and demand, um, you may be assuming that it's only thanks to like the extremely good CEO efforts that profits are made. But if you break it down by looking at what happens when certain workers leave, there's a study that showed that 40% of the CEOs who died by heart attacks between, I mean, like 1995 and 2005, 40% of the time something like that happened, this company stock went up on the news because the shareholders were expecting a better replacement to come in. So distributed justice within the firm has to respond to the contributions of all the workers. And then for the state, there's a question of having everyone in society participate. And so the biggest issue there for distributive justice is making sure that you don't have millions and millions of people unemployed because they can't find a decent job, but rather that you offer enough job training programs, a good enough education, as well as industrial policy that would encourage employers to offer decent jobs. And then you're actually making better use of the supply of human resources that you have. So I wouldn't say that the economic incentives are necessarily in tension with just the human demands, if you understand them rightly.
0: Dr. Doran, what are some of those policy reforms that we should think about to uh, help increase self-sufficiency in wages?
2: Well, I, I wanna actually uh, de- defer to Brian a bit, a bit on that, but first I wanna just add something a little bit on what Brian just said. So you mentioned, Jason, a little bit about the distributive justice that we need to think about and how that relates to supply and demand. I think it's it's also the case, certainly, that there's a sense of commutative justice that you know if you're producing a certain amount for your your, your employer, then you know, they, they need to there needs to be some commutative justice in terms of what they pay you for that. And there's going to be some correspondence then between what you produce uh, on the margin and what they pay you on the margin. And so this is not in contradiction, it's in addition to what Brian said. So you brought up distributive justice and then supply and demand. I guess. The direction I'm going is, is I think the right place to be thinking about supply and demand is probably commutative justice and when we talk about distributive justice it's more along the lines of what Brian added to that and the you know they don't these types of justice don't don't contradict each other so we can be pursuing policies to make sure that there's a certain amount of commutative justice and those policies are going to take into account a lot of the things we learn from the intersection of supply and demand and the and the fortuitous aspects of that intersection uh, and so we can we can incorporate that, and I know Brian likes to incorporate that in his thought, um, without failing to think in addition uh, about distributive justice.
0: Yeah, and that's an excellent point. You've this is the second time you've charitably called me out on imprecision in my terms. No. In commutative, commu, commutative justice would be the more proper uh, term here when we're talking about wages as opposed to distributive justice, which speaks more to macroeconomic issues. It seems in In that context, uh, so what what do we do about Brian, pro-productivity reforms? How can we increase self-sufficiency and wages? What are some good things at state Catholic conferences such as we have here in Minnesota when we're going to talk to legislators? How do we do? How do we support workers and family economic security?
3: The single best practical advice I have really would be Zada Tan's good job strategy, that there are multiple paths to productivity. And then regulations to push companies to a high-skill, high-pay, where workers are seen as an investment rather than a low-skill and low-pay, where workers are seen as the biggest cost to be minimized. She's done great work on that in the service industry, which, as we all know, is more important than manufacturing, just percentage-wise. The other thing would be to looking at directed technological change. Economist Darren S. Moglu has written well on this. Especially concerning automation going down the road, we, we've had decades of labor supplanting or labor replacing technological change, rather than labor supplementing or labor supporting technological change, where just firms have chosen more and more to invest in technologies that'll replace the worker altogether, rather than augment the worker's capabilities. And what we saw with Tesla was is a great and kind of heartbreaking example when. The, the company tried to automate the factories to an extreme extent, maybe five or six years ago. The CEO, Elon Musk, admitted that it was a failure. The quote was, humans are overrated. And yet, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to pay better wages, allow my workers to unionize and have a better workplace environment to be able to get better productivity. He just announced recently that he's trying to create a human-like robot that will be able to replace workers in many dangerous and difficult tasks. The goal for manufacturing, again, would be labor supplementing technological change, pursuing those machines that will increase what one worker can do rather than replace them altogether.
0: As more and more families have to turn to double incomes and two uh, two parents working outside the home and the challenges that brings with child rearing, more people are looking at a living wage and thinking about a living wage for a, a breadwinner so much as the church used to propose 50, 40, 50, 60 years ago. In what way can public policy promote or support a living wage? Is that something that has to be negotiated within the firm between the enterprise and the worker, or can, is there a public policy dimension to a living wage or is that even realistic anymore? Say a little bit about the the living wage. And that's for either of you or both of you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I will just briefly say, first of all, the living wage depends a lot on where you're living
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and who's doing the living, the living wage for somebody who's got a lot of kids, in a big urban area is going to be very different than the living wage for someone with very few kids in a less urban area. Furthermore, if we're in the business of really digging into radical policies affecting the productivity of the economy, some of those policies may involve encouraging people to move from one place to another or massively changing the, the housing stock in one place or another, all of which is going to affect what counts as the living wage for different people. So I think when people campaign for a living wage, it's often based on campaigns that are a little simplistic about individual numbers. And we need to take into account not only the heterogeneity across place and heterogeneity across, across household size, but also the fact that all of that's going to change subject to policies that affect what people produce, uh, where they live, uh, and how much stock is available for their for their living. So that's a long-winded answer saying that there's a lot of heterogeneity here and the heterogeneity is inter- interesting. And the other thing that I'll say is that what counts as a living wage also is affected by what is paid for through your earnings and what is paid for through the public purse. You know, if you, you know, if I have a single payer system for healthcare, then what counts as a living wage for many people is going to be very different than in a world where we don't. And that's just one example. So we need to be careful when we talk about living wages There are people in the United States that probably look like they don't have a living wage, that if you take everything into account, they do. And there's also people quite on the other side of that. So maybe Brian can fill in.
3: Yeah, I would just add that it is absolutely essential that we talk about a living wage. It is deeply established, not just in the American Catholic tradition, but just the Catholic church in general. And I think the way to go about attempting to make it real is viewing it as a goal and a process to attain rather than a, a baseline. So yeah, I've had enough economic training that I don't think we can make a $20 an hour minimum wage across the country because that's like the start of a living wage that really
2: is not feasible. Brian, just to briefly interrupt, nor would it really make sense given what I was trying to express about what families need for living across different types of families and across different types of environments.
3: Yeah, that's for sure. So that's why local regulations rather than federal solution, I think, is part of the issue. But also every company, and there are, there are a number of good ones, like Real Pre- Real Precision Manufacturing, also up in your neck of the woods. It's one of the places which uh, has a set policy of offering a training path to all workers who want to go on a career ladder upwards so that they can't offer a living wage right when you're hired with zero skills. But within three or four years, if you like go up the career ladder, then you'd be able to make a, a targeted living wage. And also for families to have... I think the rise of part-time work is really important, just as a guy in his 30s with three kids and a wife who works part-time, I'm um, seeing that more and more would be really helpful. Instead of having dual incomes, no kids, having two part-time jobs and more time with your family, I think would be a great solution for my generation of workers.
0: Well, the world tries to pull apart things like economics and ethics and theology, Catholicism reintegrates what the world tries to break apart. And your collaboration in this article and here and the work between the field of economics and moral theology just shows there's a great fruitfulness there. So I'm grateful for what you're doing and your appearance on the Bridge Builder today and your article, Governance for Good Jobs. The Need for Pro-Productivity Reforms, which was published by American Affairs. And we'll post that on our show page. Dr. Kirk Doran, Brian Boyd, thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today.
2: Thank you so much, Jason, it's been a pleasure.
0: A real blessing, blessings to you on your work. And we'll be back in a moment with our practical action tip for the week. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder Program, where we help you bridge the gap between faith and public life. Kit, what's this week's practical action item for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so back at the start of November, many of our listeners hopefully turned out to cast their votes in local elections. And now that the votes are tallied, there are many new and some returning people who are representing you on a local level. So whether it's your local school board, or maybe it's a park board or new city council members, or maybe even a new mayor. But now is the time to start building or continue building those bridges. So this week, we want to encourage our listeners to personally reach out to any or all of your newly elected representatives on your local level. Help them to understand what the issues are that are important to you, but also let them know that you are there to be a resource for them. That's all we have time for today. And thanks everyone again for tuning in. You can always find our past episodes. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kitsipenik at the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening and have a very blessed day.